Hello, internet. Let's make this thing go viral. Um, it's great to see everybody here this morning, especially the, the fresh faces. I'm really glad you're here. If you're just visiting us because your home church isn't up and running yet, um, we welcome you to be here for as long as you're here. Otherwise, our heart is always that people would find out exactly where God wants them to be most fruitful in the kingdom. And sometimes that's here, and for most of the church, it's not. And we bless everybody in their calling and where God wants them to be. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. So as you have your Bibles or you have your smartphones that have a Bible on there, I'm reading out of the ESV today. So if that will help you to know which translation I'm using, you can hook yourself up there. And I do invite you to do your best to have something here. We're going to hit up most of the chapter, Lord willing. Maybe not. No promises. I read one of my favorite news articles of all time this week. The story went something like this, that as many of you may know, the, our friends on the other side of our border are having an election this fall. And so people are sending out voter registrations so people can sign up to vote. And somebody informed a newspaper that um, their cat had been sent a letter to register to vote. Their cat had like a semi-human name like Tim or Cody or something like that. And so somehow, maybe somebody hacked a vet clinic or something like that, but this cat's name got onto the voter list. So this guy got a letter in the mail for his cat to ask them to sign up to vote in the elections at fall. And you know, I've always personally thought that the one thing missing from the democratic process was more feline input. I just think... (laughs) There's a voice we have not heard from yet, how we should. Now, one of the things that also made this story very interesting is that the cat had been dead for like five years. For me, soliciting the dead for votes is crossing the line, though. Personally, I don't think anyone should be holding seances to find out, maybe just tip things in one favor. It's not going to be the conservatives who win if you're looking for dead people to vote on. So I'm just, I'm just saying... I'm joking a little bit. But it did make me think that, honestly, I don't think cats would want to participate in the democratic process because as far as creatures go, now there may be some exceptions, and if you're a cat lover, don't let me offend you before I even get to scripture. But cats tend to see, to to me, to be not the kind of creature that loves democracy. They seem to lean more towards tyranny. You know, cats believe in one boss, And they're it, right? And if that's not true for your cat, it's definitely true for Scratchy Cat. Did I ever tell you about the time Scratchy Cat's master bought some flowers? No? Oh, that's good, because I just made up that story this morning, so you probably haven't heard it. Anyhow, Scratchy Cat was doing the tyrant thing. Scratchy Cat was the master of the house, even if Master thought he was the master of the house just because he paid the bills and bought the food and paid the vet bills, just because he did that stuff. He thought he was the master. Scratchy Cat knew deep down in his cat soul, if cats have souls, which I don't think they do, but if cats have souls, deep in his soul, he knew he was king of his castle. And one of the things Scratchy Cat did every day as part of his routine for being king of the castles, he would um, walk the entire house, just master of all he surveyed. And so he'd had this kind of route where he would start by his cat bed, which was in the kitchen, where he would lie down. 
And then he would go around the kitchen and then hop up over. There was an island in the middle of the kitchen. He'd hop up and walk across that thing, then go down, and then he'd walk behind the couches in the living room. Anybody have a cat who does this that just walks the course? Okay, so walks around behind the couches in the living room, then down the hallway, and then he would go and lay on the master bedroom pillow for a while until he was very, very sure that the pillow smelled just like him. And then he would get off the pillow, and then he'd go through the guest bedroom, then into the bathroom, close the door, do some cat business, open the door, and then go back and lay on his bed. That was a daily routine just to let everybody know, this is mine. Well, one day, Master bought some flowers, and he wanted a really nice bouquet. It was early spring. He'd been shut up because of COVID. They'd finally opened up the flower stores, at least for, you know, curbside pickup. And he got this really awesome bouquet of Gerber daisies. You know, those big, gigantic ones that come in red and oranges and yellows. And he bought one of these humongous bouquets of Gerber daisies and put it in a vase, Voss, Voss vase. And he put it right in the center of the island in the kitchen. Unbeknownst to him, directly in the path of Scratchy Cat's kingly walks. So when Scratchy Cat woke up the next morning, because that was a bit later in the day, he went for his walk and he went around the outside of the kitchen and hopped onto the island and was about to cross the island and realized that there was a humongous, to his eyes, hideous aberration right in the midst of where his kingly procession should be going. No problem, thought Scratchy Cat, who kind of gingerly walked up beside the Voss vase and quote-unquote, cat claws quote-unquote, nudged the Voss, causing it to plummet off the side of the island. Well, a couple of things happened when Scratchy Cat did this. The first thing is that the Voss hit the ground, vase hit the ground. Which one is it? Let's do a little vote. Voss, put your hands up. Voss, okay, vase. Put your hands up. Okay, this is a vase base, apparently, so I'm going to run with vase. The vase hit the ground, and it shattered. And not only did it shatter, but it shot the water and flowers like a cannon out of the top of it. And the water and the flowers and some broken glass all flew right on top of Scratchy Cat's cat bed. Gloosh. And at the same time, Master, who was sitting at the island, kind of went for a jump reach to try to catch it on its way down. And fell off of his stool and hit the ground and pulled his lower back while he hit the ground while he was reaching. This all happened instantaneously. Well, Master's lying on the ground. He's blown his back out. And he can't even move. He's just lying there groaning. And he pulls out his smartphone and he calls Bill. And he says, Bill, I blow my back out. You need to take me to the hospital. And so Bill eventually shows up and takes Master out to the hospital, and Scratchy Cat is left there with a soaking wet bed and no one to feed him. For one hour, for two hours, for six hours, it's the Canadian healthcare system, for 12 hours. Just kidding. Scratchy Cat thought he was God. Did it work out for him when he tried to deal with the one thing that wasn't fitting into his plans? We're going to be looking at Nebuchadnezzar. And if you read Daniel chapter 2, I put out a call. If anybody's on that prayer chat, I invite you to read it. But if you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the world as far as anyone knew at this time. And he was the head of an empire that 
easily crushed all of its enemies and all of its neighbors for as far as anyone could travel, pretty much. And he was the guy who really got whatever he wanted. He crushed every enemy and every people group that he crushed. He made his personal slaves. And if you remember from last week, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem and had taken from Jerusalem all the gold treasures out of the temple and all their wealth and even their human wealth. He took all the nobility and all their strong men and he took the very best of Jer- that Jerusalem had to offer and he brought it home for them to serve him. And this was Nebuchadnezzar. He went and conquered the world and then took the best of the world and made the best of the world his slaves in his city. So he's up, 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 all the way up, 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 up. And whatever, whoever Nebuchadnezzar did not like, died. Okay? And so he thinks that he can control everything all the way, all the time. And the reason he thinks that is because so far he's been able to do it. And then he goes to bed one night and this happens. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Uh Uh-oh. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, just so you know, the Chaldeans here were a people group. It's actually the people group that Abraham came out of, but they also were so known for like being wise men that the Chaldeans isn't just like a nationalities thing. It meant you were like a university professor back then or something like that. So the Chaldeans, they be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. I'm sorry for laughing. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dreams, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the dream, till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Is Nebuchadnezzar the kind of person who absolutely expects to get what he wants? 
Yes, like almost nobody else. He had, and, and this is one of the things that as I've been watching or looking at Nebuchadnezzar's soul, and the more I think about him, the more I'm more like him than I wish I would admit. But here he is so convinced that he ought to be in 100% control of everything and that he ought to be able to get whatever he wants that even having a dream that he doesn't understand enrages him. Okay? And we're not used to the type of control. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he conquered all these people. He made everybody his slaves. He would have had this gigantic harem full of all the most beautiful women in the world who are only his women. He was surrounded by eunuchs, which meant men who'd been castrated so that they weren't any threat to the women. He was 100% surrounded by always getting what he wants. And that didn't make him a better person. It made him the kind of person who, when suddenly something happened that he could not control, which was a dream, he wakes up in the morning and he is just furious at being unsettled. And he summons all the best people in the world, magicians and wise men and Chaldeans and the best of the best and the cream of the crop and the people who who are so trained to give him what he wants that as soon as they start talking to him, they have to say, oh king, may you live forever. Like they're trained to wish eternal life on this guy because he's so the center of the universe. And they're like, well, why don't you tell us the dream? And he's so crazy with selfishness that he says, No, I want you to tell me my dream. So that I know you're telling me the right interpretation. Now there's a bit of a a smartness in there, right? Because if if you tell them the dream, then they can just make up whatever hibbity-bibbity-bobbity-dobbity, gimbity-gabbity, I don't even know how to end this. They can make up whatever they want. And Nebuchadnezzar, who wants to all of us, he wants his rule in his own heart. I rule everything he wants. And that that thought, I rule everything, is being challenged by the dream. He wants to hear the interpretation in a way that he knows the interpretation is true. He doesn't want to get manipulated by the people around him. Because that would only make him feel less in control. He says, you have to tell me the interpretation. or Sorry, the dream itself, so that I know you can tell me the interpretation for real. And then when the wise men wisely tell him, no one can do this, he says, well, then you might as well be dead. And he's going to kill all these wise men. This is probably thousands of people he's talking about killing. The wise men, the enchanters, the magicians. He's probably talking about this class that existed in his empire, which was very likely thousands of people talking about, you're all dead because I had this dream. Do you see the picture of this, this man's character, this man's soul, this man's mind here? He so expected everything to go just the way his will would want it that a dream, one night of dreaming, led him to decree for hundreds, probably thousands of people to die because they couldn't do a supernatural work of telling him his own dream. I'm like most people, and I want things to go the way I want things to go. Are you ever like that? No? Oh, man. 
do you ever just want things to be the way you want things to be? And do you ever get frustrated when you don't get what you want, when you want it, how you want it, why you want it? Nobody? Can we all admit that we have a little Nebuchadnezzar living in our heart? Maybe he's not so little. Okay, this, the first part of this story, for me, and I think for all of us, I, I, what I want to do is in my heart and in my soul just reject the lie that thinks, if I could get things the way I want things to be, then things will be okay. Because Nebuchadnezzar had that. He had the entire known world at his fingertips for his will. And the God of the universe destroyed it with a dream. And so that gives me the fear of the Lord. Like, why would I try to get in the place where I'm in control and can get all the things I want, knowing that God could, with just a, with, with just a, a fly, he could let one stray electron fly off of a, a molecule somewhere, and the chain reaction could confirm to me that I'm not in control. So why would I want to let my heart think, well, I can't be a full-fledged Nebuchadnezzar, but I could be a little Nebuchadnezzar at home. I could be a little Nebuchadnezzar in my brain. I could be a little Nebuchadnezzar at work. I could be a little Nebuchadnezzar, you know, in my marriage or over my kids. Maybe I can't get the whole world to say, oh, king, live forever every time I talk to me, but I could at least get Timmy to do it. He's super trainable. He doesn't know what he's doing. I could just call It's king. It's not dad, dad. Just, it's king. And this story just tells me, Rob, don't even want that. It's a trap. In God's universe, that's a trap. In fact, it's more than a trap. It's painting a bullseye on your forehead. The older I get, the more I'm convinced that there's there's this saying in Scripture, which is the saying that God uses to tell us his plan for all of human history. And it's this. It's from James and Peter, 1 Peter as well. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you want to take one sentence to help you understand the entire book of Daniel, that's it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if there's anybody in the Bible who's proud, it's Nebuchadnezzar. And so God opposes him. And is humiliating him by using his dream, which, you know, even when you think you're a God-man, you need to sleep. And as soon as you go to bed, you're not in charge of your thoughts anymore. Amen? Some people, they've got real control. They've got lots of willpower. They control their thoughts. They think the way they want to. They're going to be Navy SEALs. You go fall asleep, and God's in charge of what you're thinking. Amen? So God goes to this place, the hidden place in his mind, the secret place of Nebuchadnezzar, and he just goes and he says, you're not in control. Right there. And Nebuchadnezzar freaks out. And so for me, it just it's like, oh, I don't even want to... I don't even want to want that anymore. Because I don't actually want to be in a place where God is opposing me in my pride. Even though I'm his son, and even though I'm his servant, and even though he loves me, even the children of God, that truth is still true. When we're proud, God puts on the brakes. But when we're humble, he starts pouring out the grace. Amen? Have you ever experienced that before? Anyhow, so much for Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's look at Daniel. 
Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel's amongst this group. As you remember, last time, um, he, he and his three friends turned out to be ten times better at school than all the other people they went to school with. They got the summa cum laude or whatever it is. They got the Harvard full scholarship job. And so they were part of this wisdom class. And so when the guards come to kill them, they would at least like to know why they're going to die. This is how quickly it's gone from dream to mass killing, is that the people who are getting killed don't even know why the swords are at their door. God, this is crazy. And so Ariak, who obviously doesn't totally buy into the command, he's being submitted to it, he's going to carry it out, but he obviously is willing to be talked to before... Um, he says, you know, this is what's going on. And Daniel says, okay, let, let me at least respond. And he asks for permission to go into the king and, and says to the king, um, why, why don't you just tell me when you'd like to know by? And I think we can see in Daniel's heart here, he has such a humble heart. You, do you remember his story? He's been kidnapped and enslaved from Jerusalem. He's probably really young when it happened because he lived for a long, long time. He outlived like five kings. And he's compelled to go to the school and he's compelled to be the king's wise men. And so he, he is, in one sense, the story of not getting what you want. And it's not even his fault because Jerusalem, by God's decree, was destroyed because of the wickedness of previous evil kings over Jerusalem. And so here's Daniel, having not earned his exile personally, serving this king. And here comes a guy to kill him, and he responds by saying, Can I at least have a kick at the can? Can I at least have an opportunity to fulfill the king's request? I just think, how would I respond? I, I would feel so angry that the king would try to kill me unjustly. That's the thing that would probably hit me. This isn't fair. I'd just be like throwing furniture up against the door and yelling, this isn't fair. You're serving a moron. You're serving a fool. Your, your boss is going to go down in biblical history as a complete maniac. Stop it. Don't do this. You know, that would be my, my, my fleshly response to like, attack back the injustice how about you right maybe and daniel is so different than me that he, the bible even says he replies with prudence and discretion he's not responding out of his own self-concern he wants to respond with prudence and discretion he wants to think well, what could actually respond or have a good outcome how do i not get as upset as as Nebuchadnezzar's upset. How do I not fight fire with fire, but how do I fight fire with water here? 
That's what prudence means. It means to hold back until you discover the best possible method of dealing with the situation. It's wanting solutions instead of revenge. That's what he wants, prudence and discretion. And so he, he knows, deep down, the only way this can work out well is to try to give the king what he wants. Plus, what has he got to lose? So I die tomorrow instead of today. But do you see how his response is, I just love it. This is why I was advocating last week that we would see Daniel as a hero to want to imitate. Like, just imagine the pressure of having a group of armed guards at your door with a, with a key to the lock of your door. This isn't a situation where I would find it easy to just sit down and be like, let's think this through. Let's do a pro-con analysis. Let's, let's brainstorm a flow chart of outcomes. But his soul is trained by faith in the Lord to love wisdom, to love good answers, to love godly solutions that he says, well, actually, why don't, why, don't, why don't you just let me go and tell the king, I will give it a shot if you'll let me know when you want me to come back with your answer. And it sounds like the king gave him one night because they went and prayed that night. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those were his friends, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wide and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. And as I read this part of the book of Daniel. You know, every one of these stories kind of has the king do something stupid and somebody godly resisting it, but in a way that produces a good result. And the thing that we really see coming out of Daniel's heart here is he believed that his God is the living God. Contrasted to dead gods. In, in Babylon, Daniel would have been surrounded everywhere with stone idols and gold idols and silver idols and bronze idols, big tall statues and little small pocket idols. You know, we call them smart idols because they fit in your pocket and you can whip them out to idolatrize yourself to them anywhere you want. There was all kinds of idols. And the thing that was common with all these idols is that they were dead. They're made out of dead materials and can't do anything. But Daniel's faith was in a living God, a God without an idol, a God without an image, a God that could not be seen or compelled to do anything, but a God that is alive and ruling over history and answers believing prayer. This was, God, this was Daniel's hope. My God answers believing prayer. This was his hope. And this is how he could be humble, and this is how he could trust, and this is how he could be patient. King, tell me the time you want to respond. I will be back because I know that God will hear my prayer and act. And if you look at that first scene with Nebuchadnezzar and all his wise men, you know what they all deep down secretly believe? That their gods could not solve this problem. 
Because when they say, you've asked us to do something that no man could do, that's the end of their conversation. They don't say, but we'll go pray. Deep down, they are all convinced that it's just human strength and wisdom. That's all there is. And Daniel's, Daniel's response is, human strength and wisdom doesn't mean anything. Just give me an hour to go seek the living God and we'll see what he does. And that's part of his praise when he's praising the Lord. You give wisdom. You give might. You tear down kings, which is what happened to Jerusalem. And you raise them up, which is what God is going to do four times for Daniel while he's in Babylon. You're in control. You're the living God who acts. And so if there is one way that this morning you wanted to go home and embrace this kind of humility that the Bible's calling for, this kind of humility that God responds with grace, I think from this chapter of the Bible, I would encourage you to say, I want to grow as a Christian who believes that the living God answers my prayers. Amen? That would be the thing. What do you want me to do, Rob? I want you to pray And I want you to walk with God so that he helps you to grow in believing that he answers your prayers. Because one of the things Daniel is proving to us is, number one, that our strength can't do that much. And God sometimes will even prove it to us by frustrating our attempts at accomplishments that we do without him. And number two, he can do anything. Amen? All right, so let's wrap it on up with the bow on top by looking at this this dream. So Daniel goes into the king's presence. I'm just going to pick where I... I think let's start in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, and its chest and arms were silver, and the middle and the thighs were bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone cut out by no human hand. That's my favorite line in this entire chapter. A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold altogether were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, which is, you know, kind of like when uh, a prairie wind goes across a dirt parking lot and just whips up some dust and then off it goes onto the cornfield and you never see it again. That's kind of what it's talking about. But the stone was struck, sorry, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king's interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever 
Wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heavens, making you ruler over them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, but iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as of the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As I understand this, this is referring to the Babylonian Empire, which is under Nebuchadnezzar, followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is under like Darius and Cyrus, followed by the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and the Seleucids, followed by the Roman Empire, which is under all those emperors. Okay, so that's what I understand are the parts of the image. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke them into pieces. Excuse me. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. Okay. So, can you picture it? This big image, it's often thought to be like a human image. It doesn't say exactly what it is, probably because the Bible's not a big fan of idolatry, so it doesn't go into it in any de- much detail most of the time. But this human image, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron mixed with clay. And this stone, which is cut out by no human's hands, meaning it's from God's hand, is going to come and smash the feet, and then the entire image is going to disintegrate and disappear. So this is the crazy stuff. Okay, so here's Nebuchadnezzar. By God's own admission, the greatest emperor who's going to live for the next 600 years. He is the head of gold. By God's own opinion, not human opinion, by God himself, his own opinion is that Nebuchadnezzar is wielding more greatness and power than anybody in the world will for the next 600 years. And here is Nebuchadnezzar in his bed, and he has this dream, and it unsettles him. And in the wisdom of God, and kind of the, I don't know, it makes me laugh a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar, in the height of his power, what is actually happening is that God has come to tell him he's going to destroy everything Nebuchadnezzar is and has. That's the the point of the dream. That God is going to cut a stone out and he's going to cast it on the earth and everything you are and everything you have and all the people who come after you who won't even be as great as you, they're all going to be destroyed and it's all going to turn to nothing and I'm going to take this pebble and I'm going to make it grow into a mountain bigger than the world. That's the dream. And what he does is because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't understand the dream, he makes a Judean who is the line of Christ come to him and here's Daniel, a slave in the king's court who's been robbed from Jerusalem and he is declaring the truth of the gospel. Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? You're destroyed. And he does it in such a way that Nebuchadnezzar thanks him for the message. Do you understand the wisdom and craziness of God here? He unsettles Nebuchadnezzar with this dream about the end of empires. And Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to read, thanks him for the message that is coming from one of his slave people who is going to be the same blood relative of the Christ. 
Why does this matter? That stone cut out from by no human hand is Jesus. It is a picture of God establishing his kingdom on the earth that someone who is not sent from man but sent from heaven is going to come down to earth and in his life and in his death he is going to shatter for all time mere human power and he is going to start a kingdom, the church, which is going to grow out from Jerusalem and like a mountain of worship and strength is going to fill the entire world. That's the prophecy. Judea at its lowest point prophesying to the power of man, of unbelieving man at its highest point in about 600 years you're toast forever. Do you see the, the wisdom of God? Do you see the power of God that he can send this slave kid to go and declare to human might, you're done. You're done. You're done. You're done. You're done. It's just a matter of time. But the clock is ticking. Whew. Now this is the, one of the exciting things for me. It's just I, I've just been marveling at the power of God's prophetic dream for here. Because this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the images going down through time, through all the phases from gold down to clay, and then being destroyed by the pebble... And then the pebble growing to a mountain, that thus far has encapsulated about 2,600 years of human history. And we're part of the mountain. You're like, where does this rim What about me? What about me in this prophetic picture? You're part of the mountain. That's where you fit in Daniel 2. And so Jackie and I, we've been talking this week, and I just, you know, to encourage myself, I'm like, man, I'm standing on the ever-growing mountain. That's where you fit into it. You're part of the mountain as a member of the kingdom of God and being united with Jesus. And we are, as the church of Christ, we don't depend on the power of man, of unbelieving man, of of secular man. We don't depend on it. We stand on the ever-growing mountain who is Christ. And we live in this really weird time, like... God bless us. We're the church. We, we, there's no people on earth who understand their own history as poorly as Christians do right now. Anybody? Like, guys, we just think, oh, Christianity, it's just this thing that happened and it's a white man's relation. No, it's not. When Daniel was declaring this dream, all the white people in the world were a bunch of tree-worshipping naked people in the the northern parts of Germany, or a bunch of like incestuous rock worshippers in England. We were the nothing burgers of the world, the Europeans, if you want to put it like this. All the cool stuff was happening with the brown people at this time. And I'm not saying that to be racist, but I'm just, I'm saying that because all that, that idea of empires and people groups ruling the world was destroyed by the mountain of Christ. That's the only empire. This is the thing about this, this prophecy. There is no other kingdom after Jesus came. There is no other empire. There's no like, and then there's going to be another image, and then the mountain's going to smash that, and then there's going to be another image, and then the mountain's going to... There, God isn't doing anything in the world but the church. And there's times and seasons. But guys, we are in here in nowhere Steinbeck, which is wonderful because apparently COVID doesn't know where we are either and it's never shown up here. 
You know, it's like it's looking at its geography book. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to L.A. There's lots of people there. That's not important. And I said, where's Steinbeck? Doesn't seem worth the trip to me. <laughs> Sorry, joke. Sorry. Sorry. Trigger warning. But, but this. This is, this is the thing. The ever-growing mountain of Christ is all he's doing. You think about that. The spread of the church from that little prayer meeting in Jerusalem and Pentecost 2,000 years ago, it has gone everywhere. And there are lots of smaller people groups that need the gospel still. That's why frontiers exist. They're trying to get to people who have never heard the gospel or aren't or unreached. But the gospel of Christ that, that is the church, that's created the church, has gone all the way around the world and is now the biggest thing that's happening in the world. And we just, I, we need to get our brains into this. No matter what else is happening, it's about the ever-growing mountain of God which is Jesus Christ and is his kingdom. It is the spread of the gospel. That's what God is doing. And everything else in human history serves this. I feel like I'm just saying what I said last week. But it is true. Everything that's happening now serves this. It serves this. The movement of peoples, the rise and falls of countries, the, the economic strengths and failures, the development of technology, whether it's the printing press so you can send the Bible anywhere, or aircraft so that we can go to missions anywhere in about 48 hours in the world now. It used to take like a year to sail there, and that was after like 1,500 years of never being able to get anywhere with the gospel. You had to walk, and that's why it was within walking distance of most places for about a 1,000 years. Everything is so Serving God's ultimate purpose to fill the world with a mountain of worship in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And whenever we want to stop and think, I'm really important. You know what? It's totally true in one sense. And at the same time, all that matters until Jesus returns is the growth of the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Jeremiah Burroughs says, if you're traveling and you go to a hotel and there's like a leaky faucet, you don't care because you're going home tomorrow. Amen? If you stop off at a hotel and you get a bad sleep, you don't care because you're going home tomorrow. And that's this time, our lives right now. There's lots to care about. And yes, there's lots of things that's important. Don't over misrepresentate myself here. But this mountain growing until the return of Christ, it's a short time. And then we go home. Amen? Okay, I think I'm all out of ammo. Reload. Why don't we worship? Is the band around here? Can we worship? I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so hungry for my own heart. Because I, the, you know what the Nebuchadnezzar heart does in us? It totally shrinks down our lives to what we think we can control. 
It shrinks down the universe until we, to what we think we can dominate. But the mountain of the ever, the ever growing mountain of God, it causes us to raise our eyes to the one who sets up kings and brings down kings. The one who decides who will be wise and who will be foolish. The one who starts life and ends life and grants eternal life. It causes us, when we reject the Nebuchadnezzar heart and walk with Daniel in believing prayer, as Greg was encouraging us before, knowing that this God who troubled Nebuchadnezzar's mind is now living inside of our hearts and minds through the Holy Spirit. It lifts up our eyes to see to help us to see beyond this life and beyond these times and beyond these days. And our call is to be so faithful in these days, knowing that these days are like green grass. It's either going to get eaten or rounded up or wither. We can't keep it. But the ever-growing mountain of the kingdom of God, it will last forever. And it's ours. And we're in it. And this is where our attention and our hope and our focus ought to be. Even in the little things. Amen? Okay, I'm going to let these guys lead us, but why don't we stand? Father, I'm, I'm praying for myself, Lord. I want to grow to be like Daniel. To be able to be in the presence of the king of the world and... Be so obsessed with the king of the universe. And Lord, would you together help us to rejoice in the living God who really loves us and really has called us and really answers our prayers. And Father, would you do for me and for all of us to help us to grow and to have more of a vision of God's kingdom spreading throughout the world. Lord, you said 2,600 years ago, this is what you're going to do. And you have been doing it. From a cross outside of Jerusalem, which smashed the power of Rome, to the spread throughout the globe. Of, and your, your mission is to gather together every tongue and every tribe and every color. Worshipping on your mountain. Lord, in this I delight, and I want to be useful in my day. Let's worship the Lord.